welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our February edition of the podcast, being recorded in the middle of March. We're sort of catching up, Simon. It's maybe the spring air that's getting us back on track. Uh, how are things with you up north in the cold and windy northwest? It is cold and windy today, actually. You can probably hear the, the gale coming through the windows in my very old house. But um, things are getting better, I think. Um, certainly the numbers of COVID patients have gone down quite a lot. Still, ICU's quite busy, so we've still got that long lag and long tail of patients who've been seriously unwell but certainly the numbers coming through the door are lower. And I think, well, spring has definitely sprung. There's flowers coming out of the ground. We've had some beautiful days up here. And I think I'm, I'm feeling a bit more cheery, actually. How about yourself? Well, even better news. The children are back at school. So for those of you who are not in the UK, we have what's being described as a roadmap. Uh, I'm not sure why it's a roadmap, but it is. And the first stage of the roadmap is children back at school. So home learning, that emergency learning we were all doing is now hopefully over for the time being and children are back where they should be with teachers who have been taught how to teach and learning and playing and being together again. So it is all optimistic, I would say. It is, but unfortunately, we've got to start with some sad news as well. Absolutely. So we can't really go much further in an emergency medicine podcast, especially in a UK emergency medicine podcast, without mentioning Cliff Mann. Cliff Mann was a recent president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine who very sadly died in February. He was a huge presence throughout the whole of the UK emergency medicine, not just as part of the college, but as part of getting it right first time. The new group where he and Chris Moulton were travelling around departments and many people as part of that will have met Cliff and will have many happy memories of times with him where he was not only a very knowledgeable presence but also a very kind supportive and jolly presence I really like chatting to him and I'll miss him hugely Simon you must have many memories of Cliff yeah lots actually I've met him on multiple occasions and I would agree he's a very very friendly guy and um, but also very wise and and uh, did a lot for the specialty brought it on during his presidency and um, a great deal actually put a lot of processes in which we're now benefiting from today the one that always sticks in my mind is USEM when we went to Amsterdam um, where he was a great presence there and just I've got I've got some videos I've put them up on Twitter of him riding a bike around the conference centre which was just hilarious and with a massive smile on his face having a great time with friends with colleagues and that's how I want to remember him. It always seemed that he was always part of his clinical department and I know those in the southwest will be missing him hugely and our thoughts go out to them and his family uh, but knowing Cliff I know that he'd want us to move on with emergency medicine and continue our efforts to make things better not just for our patients but for our trainees and for ourselves and make sure we're doing the best we can. So in that frame of mind we will go on and think about the blog posts for this month. So Simon let's crack on. Let's think about TIAs. And why is it that Canada can't stop itself getting risk scores? It's got a risk score for everything, hasn't it? So this is the Canadian TIA risk score, which was published recently and really, I think, looking to compare itself to the ABCD2 score. Do you think you're going to be adopting this Canadian risk score? Well, the adoption questions um, is, is a slightly separate one. I, I might come back to that one about whether we adopt it, because that's really about how your systems and your processes and your organisations are set up. But the study itself is quite interesting. And you're right, the Canadians love, there's a group in, in Canada who do this sort of thing. And they've done the subarachnoid scoring, the, you know, it goes all way back to the Ottawa knee and ankle rules, really. Great expertise in this group. In the past, they did a derivation study of working out uh, a way of risk stratifying, like we do for PE or DBTs, patients with TIA. Quite a complex one, actually. I think there's something like 15 different elements to it. So it's quite difficult to work out as compared to things like the ABCD school. And they thought it was great. It looked as if it was better on paper. But as you and I know, Ian, when we've done our evidence-based medicine podcast, 
you can't just have a derivation study and think that it works. No, I mean, obviously not. You need to validate, don't you? When you derive something, then it's obviously going to work for the set that you derived in. But does it work when you apply it to a different population of patients? And essentially, that's what this study is. So it's a validation study. Over 7,600 patients across 13 Canadian emergency departments. And they scored all of these patients. Well, not all of the patients because they, they didn't do it 24-7, which may be a bit of an error. And they're a bit of a risk in it. Um, and they looked at a composite seven-day outcome of things like whether they had a stroke or whether they had to be admitted and get revascularization and that sort of stuff. And they compared the ABCD2 score, the ABCD2I score, which I hadn't come across, and the Canadian TIA score. And actually, it worked really well. In your low-risk group with scores below three, the outcome was one in 200 patients had an adverse outcome within that first week. A medium score, 2.3%, and a high score, 6.3%. So those are similar sort of numbers. The score works. So perhaps not surprisingly, that if you look for risk factors for having a stroke, and somebody's just had a TIA, the more bad things you have, the more likely you are to have a stroke. question then is, what are you going to do about it? Well, I think this is where things have changed a lot. In the UK, at least, and maybe it's my rarefied atmosphere of my teaching hospital, we were pretty lucky with the resources we had to follow these patients up. So almost regardless of their ABCD2 score, the decision wasn't when to follow them up, i.e. within 48 hours or seven days, but it was, are they being admitted or being followed up very quickly? And so actually, a lot of these patients are getting followed up regardless of this score. And they're being seen in TIA clinics or sometimes, I guess, with online versions these days. Because we're so lucky with our investigations and our access to imaging, I'm not sure that it's quite as necessary now as it maybe was a decade ago. But it's really interesting in the post that, that Stevan talks about the global perspective of this and how in areas which may be resource limited, this could be useful. Whether or not in the UK it will make a difference, I'm not entirely certain. No, I agree. We used to use the ABCD score to risk stratify about whether people were coming in or not or how urgently they would be seen in a clinic. This is actually going back some years. But now, you know, unless they've got a stuttering TIA, or they're, well, or they're not a TIA because they've still got symptoms, they're essentially going to go home and we'll see them ideally pretty much most of the time within 24 hours. This form of risk stratification is interesting, but will it have an impact on practice in the UK? I'm not sure, but absolutely I take Stefan's view that this could be a very helpful thing in resource-limited environments or where transportation to hospital might be very, very tricky. So yeah, there's a really good to get a global health perspective again, which you know we, we really do like putting into our posts whenever we can. And this moves nicely, I guess, into a little bit about how UK emergency departments work, because this next post from Craig is about our clinical standards for emergency care and how we might be looking to change these. Now, many of our listeners in the UK will be more than familiar with a four-hour target. So the, the idea that you go to an emergency department and within four hours, you will either be discharged or admitted to an inpatient bed. Often the media get it wrong and they say four hours to treatment. It's not that. It's got to be four hours to a bed or four hours to leaving the department. Now, lots of people, it's been around for well, since I've started emergency medicine, so that's a while. Lots of people have said that it's a bit too a blunt tool. And we've had various iterations of trying to change those targets to make them a little bit more reflective of the activity that's going on. And this is the next episode in that, if you like. And Craig's done a really good review of it. It seems that we're never going to get rid of rules in the emergency department, or let's call them targets. Now, I don't really mind that. And I think in the UK, we have to be very mindful that without these targets, we would have been not as lucky as we have with the resources we've been given. Now, many will say we need more resources. I think every department in the hospital will say that. But without a doubt, the numbers of consultants being appointed and the numbers of nurses and the departments themselves get a lot of attention because of these targets. They are very important to chief executives. They're very important to the health department. They're very important to the media. So changing those will have 
some significance, not just within departments, but outside too. And this presents where we may be going. It is certain though, Simon, we are not going to be without targets. They are not abolishing targets, merely changing them, hopefully making them slightly more relevant. I take all of that and completely agree with it. There will be, of course, a whole bunch of pedants now jumping up and down and going, it's not a target, it's a standard. And actually, technically, you're right that it's a standard. They were never described as targets. But the reality is, and we've talked about this before, Ian, is that if you put a number or a performance measure on anybody or anything, then it becomes a target for people to aim at. And that that's what happens in reality, regardless of what people call them. There's lots of criticism. Craig articulates it quite well in the post about the, the four-hour target standard. You know, it's a very, very blunt tool. And in some ways, it doesn't really, the one that we're, always always worried me is it doesn't necessarily reflect our sickest patients. So you can manipulate the overall four-hour performance against um, a whole range of patients by making sure that your least sick and your least concerning patients are seen very quickly and discharged at the expense perhaps of some of the, the patients who genuinely do need to be admitted to hospital. And certainly if you look at the performance of many, many hospitals, I'm going to say all because it'll be it'll be all, for patients who actually require admission to hospital, the proportion you get in within four hours is, is often very small indeed. And that's not what we want. The new proposals are quite interesting. For me, the, the, the big standout thing is that there's a whole range of them which are to, to some degree interlinked, which I think will help us avoid the gamesmanship that's happened sometimes around the four-hour standard around the country. For instance, there's a standard here for handover times, and there's also a standard for time to assessment. That's a, a, a nice way of thinking about it, because you can perhaps make your time to assessment look great by not allowing a handover, or vice versa. And so by linking this, the standards together, I think we might be able to see a better approach on a whole system. Maybe maybe there'll be cleverer people out there who can still manage to game it, but I, I, I I'm hopeful. I know there'll be people listening saying, don't be ridiculous, we don't game it. But there will be other people who at the back of their mind go, do you know what? Moving that patient to CDU on the computer was part of our management of their target. And we need to get rid of that. This is about patient care. This is about doing the best thing. And the thing I always say to the doctors I'm working with is that if you can do good emergency medicine, the targets or standards take care of themselves. The only one that we in the department don't have real handle on is how long it takes for a patient to get into an inpatient bed. The rest of it is just good emergency care. It's what you'd want for yourself. It's what you'd want for your relatives. And it's what we should aim for for our patients. And of course, the final thing, just to prevent the Twitter storm, of course, this is not an emergency department standard or target. This is for the whole healthcare system. This depends on what's happening before hospital, what's happening in the emergency department and what's happening in the hospital and even what's happening with discharges into social care or to home. It can even come down to how long it takes for patients who are inpatients to get drugs from pharmacy. So everything is involved here. It's not an ED or emergency medicine standard. It is for the whole patient journey and that can only be a good thing. Clarification, promotion of this, a whole system approach will be good. It will come with lots of pain. There is no doubt about that. But also it has the potential for massive opportunities, which is what we did actually see when the four hour standard came in, to be honest. Let's talk again about the big T, shall we, Simon? Toxalusimab. Everybody's favourite new T word. It has a Z in it. It's very funky. We've discussed it for, I think, the last three months going. And now we've got two posts this month about toxalusumab. It seems that we can confirm that it does work for COVID. So let's give it to everyone, don't you think? No, no, I think it's I think we've got to be a little bit cautious about this one and, and sort of temper some of the enthusiasm. There's two trials that have, have come out. So there's the remap cap trial, which was an ICU based trial 
looking at the early use of um, tocilizumab and, oh gosh, what's the other one? Cirilumab. I'm going to say it quickly so that nobody can uh, tell me I'm wrong. Versus standard of care on ICU, which showed a benefit to uh, tocilizumab. And then we had the recovery trial, which recruited the more severe patients with uh, COVID-19, hospitalised patients with COVID-19, so CRP over 75, oxygen requirements, and looked at that, and they've shown a 4% benefit in terms of mortality, 28 days, with the use of uh, tocilizumab in that higher risk group, which at face value is absolutely fantastic. And um, there's some good pathophysiological evidence around this. So there's some data that shows that patients who have high levels of IL-6 were doing worse before we started using tocilizumab. So there's a pathophysiological argument that it makes a lot of sense. Also, a lot of these patients, the vast, vast majority of these patients were also on dexamethasone. So quite a lot of immunosuppression there. So you're blocking your IL-6 pathway and you're giving dexamethasone. You're giving them a lot of immunosuppression in that phase of the disease, which we talked about before so not the viremic phase when you're feeling poorly at home but in that phase when you're coming into hospital you've got your covid pneumonitis and it really is behaving increasingly i'm seeing this as a, as a, as a rheumatological disease you know i can see covid19 in hospital almost being managed by the rheumatologist as we go forward because it's immunomodulation which is making the difference to that group of patients the antivirals all the stuff we see in convalescent plasma colchicine hydroxychloroquine lipinavirus on a bit none of those have made a difference now, the thing that strikes me about this is we are knocking out people's immune systems, aren't we? And I had a really interesting conversation with an ICU consultant colleague the other day. What they're seeing on a day-to-day basis on the unit, which is they're putting people onto these drugs, but they're seeing the re-emergence of opportunistic infections. We're wiping out their immune system. And I think the corollary we sort of used was almost AIDS-like in that there's no ability to fight those infections that we otherwise wouldn't see, like uh, cytomegalovirus or fungal infections. And he was saying that they're getting loads of patients on ITU after two or three weeks on these medications who are getting overwhelming HSV or CMV or cryptococcus. And maybe recovery won't have picked that up, perhaps? I think that is perhaps my biggest concern with this. So Cap, they look to mortality at 21 days. I think it was a combined one, actually. I think it may have been with mechanical ventilation. Recovery looks at 28 days post-randomisation. But that might be too soon. It may well be too soon because a patient who sort of becomes a bit unwell at home and then arrives in hospital about a week later, but they're not too bad. So they're on a bit of supplemental oxygen and then they deteriorate after a few days, maybe having been enrolled into recovery on day one, end up on oxygen for a bit. Then they get a bit of non-invasive ventilation. Then they end up on ITU. And then maybe somebody at that point then randomizes them to, to tocilizumab arm. It may not be that long until they actually get to the point where they're censored for the purposes of the trial. Um, and we get that 28-day mortality. But actually, they may die after that time from their opportunistic infections. And that is a bit of a worry because it is. And also, tocilizumab is a drug which hangs around. It affects your immune response for up to three months. So if we, if we want to prescribe tocilizumab to our patients, it has to be by two clinicians who've got experience in its use. And we have a specific follow-up cards for the patients and specific reports that go out to the GPs to warn them of the effects of immunosuppression for that long period of time. And we really do need, I think, a little bit of a longer follow-up with this group of patients to, to determine whether or not the immunosuppression is really bad. It's fascinating, isn't it? The more we learn, the more we realise we don't really understand. This colleague, again, was saying that often these patients who don't survive COVID, it's maybe five, six, seven weeks from diagnosis because they've been through this incredibly advanced intensive care. They've had all of these treatments. And even then, it's still not been able to get rid of this acute inflammatory response to help that patient recover. 
And it makes you wonder about the statistics we see, doesn't it? The deaths within 28 days. Many of these patients who are dying in intensive care are six, seven weeks after their diagnosis. The bottom line is we're working hard to work out with COVID. And I think obviously the vaccine is a game changer, but they will continue to be part of our lives. Yeah. And we need to watch this space very carefully because recovery is now also recruiting patients to another immunosuppressant, a JAK2 inhibitor called baricitinib works in the same pathway. So we could well, well, we will end up with patients who are on dexamethasone, tocilizumab and baricitinib. And again, that's quite a combo. But there's a nice paper in the New General Medicine that this month, we haven't reviewed it yet, which shows baricitinib has a beneficial effect on patients. And that actually does have a shorter half-life. So, ooh, we, you know, we, we, we're going to have to do, we're not there yet, are we? We've still got a lot to learn about this disease and a lot to learn about the role of immunosuppression in it. Absolutely. And, and of course, as part of all this, we've got patients. It's not just a physiological process. It's about the individual. And Rick did an excellent podcast, which I'd highly recommend. If you haven't heard, uh, you go and have a listen to about how we can talk about test results and risk with our patients. Rick's been doing an awful lot of work behind the scenes about how we diagnose COVID and delivering diagnostic tests. He is literally a national, if not international expert on this. So go and have a listen to that. That's where, dare I say, talking to the people who matter, talking to patients, talking to those outside the health organisations that can tell us how it feels to be part of this. If you already like and subscribe our podcast, I'm sure you've heard it already. And if this is the first time, go back and have a look on our feed and you'll be able to listen to that. Now, Simon, our last thing to talk about this month is one of those, again, where you've got to credit the team down in the southwest. Uh, Adam Rubin, uh, they've done awful lots of good work, which is entirely practical in the emergency department. And this is now moving something else we see, which is epistaxis, nosebleeds, and what we need to do. Now, you would have thought this was obvious. TXA stops bleeding, stick TSA in the nose, nose stops bleeding. But it appears that that isn't quite the case. I mean, the whole thing around TXA is hilarious, isn't it? That people have very strong views about it. And we've always tried to be fairly agnostic and just look at the evidence and, and, and make a pragmatic, practical decision on what we see. The idea of, of using TXA for epistaxis has really got into the zeitgeist, particularly around social media, about, probably about two or three, maybe even four years ago. And lots of people have published guidelines online to say that we should be using it on relatively limited evidence, actually. So it's really great to see a proper randomised control, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of TXA in epistaxis. So done in the UK between 2017 and 2019. Quite a lot of patients, 496 patients were randomised to the, the two treatments, which we need to talk about in a second, actually, to describe exactly what the treatments are. With an outcome of whether they needed packing, i.e. putting the TX on the nose had failed, there was no difference, 42.5% versus 43.7%. So on that basis, there's really very, well, there's no signal at all that TXA makes a difference. But what they did is not necessarily what other people are doing. Epistaxis is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I actually quite like managing an epistaxis. There's some really simple, straightforward things you can do. But it also seems to me that this is one of the conditions, at least where I've worked, which has been given to ENT. And I know one of the questions was, well, why are we admitting so many patients? And it comes back a bit to what we're talking about with targets. Often these patients, I think, are getting moved to ENT wards or at least treatment areas, which are called admissions. And so I don't think for those outside the UK, it reflects quite what's happening when you think of an admission. But yeah, a lot of these anterior bleeds, I enjoy looking after you you know you get in there put some pressure on suck out a clot see if you find a bleeding point and all is okay i don't think they're the ones that i thought txa would help with it's the ones where i couldn't control them and maybe that's the thing that the ones that i could control i can control and the txa doesn't actually work for the ones i couldn't they need other stuff 
Yeah, but then they did sort of take that into account in their processes. So they didn't, and this is really important, is that they didn't just give TXA to every nosebleed. So what they did is they did 10 minutes of simple measures, i.e. squeezing it. If that didn't work, they got a dental roll, you know, a little pledget type thing, soaked it in a vasoconstrictor, which you could choose your own vasoconstrictor, but I think we use phenylephrinin. Um, some people use adrenaline. Um, you shove that up the nose and leave that in for 10 minutes. And only if that had failed did you then go into the TXA arm. This is the use of TXA for nosebleeds which don't stop with simple measures, as opposed to TXA for nosebleeds in general. And therefore, in that group who are perhaps a little bit more tricky, the ones who've not stopped with their simple measures, it didn't seem to make a difference. And so I kind of think it's, 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 it's a little bit dead on this one. It's really hard when something challenges what you think might work physiologically. And also it's readily available and it's not hard. It's not expensive. It's going to be a, a while to try and make people change their practice, isn't it? I, I imagine there'll be lots of places, oh, well, we'll wait for some more evidence. But then why will people do more? This is a decent trial. They're not going to go off and do this again, are they? How will it change your practice? Well, I never used it outside of the trial, I've got to say. Um, it's been fascinating watching on Twitter about people's views of this. And again, TXA seems to be the most polarising agent that I can think of. And it's gone from people saying, oh my God, I hate TXA and I hate everybody who uses it and I hate everybody who looks at it because you're all a bunch of idiots. To people who go, this obviously works, I've used it, I've seen it working, this trial isn't going to change my practice. And so it's a really good little you know, micro-study in why belief is just as important as evidence in terms of what actually happens to patients. So for me, no, I've never used it. I think I like the idea of using the, the dental roll with a, a basic constriction, which I must admit I didn't use before this trial, but now that is my standard of practice. It's funny, isn't it? Belief, again, we could talk for a long time about people who have these absolute beliefs that they are wedded to. And it doesn't matter what we tell them or what the evidence tells them, that's not changing. And when you go to your next shift in the emergency department, I will see you will see examples of this both from your team and other teams. Just wait for the... Uh, in fact, yesterday, dare I say, we had a, a patient who was sent in with a severe abdominal pain uh, who was told by a healthcare practitioner that they mustn't take any painkillers because it would mask the signs when they got to the emergency department. That was yesterday, 2021, people, 2021. So these things take a while to go away. Simon, that is February, uh, a short and sweet month with a bit of COVID and a bit of something else. We will be back soon with March. There's lots happening. I think that we can be optimistic about the way things are going. I'll be having my second vaccine soon. I'm in fact helping I'm delighted to say on Saturday at the Salisbury Cathedral Vaccination Centre, where I've already put my request in for the organ music that will be played at perhaps the most beautiful vaccination centre in the country, if not the world. Uh, if you need to know how tall the spire is, just ask a Russian. And I'm looking forward to being part of that. So there are reasons for optimism. Simon, it's been great talking to you and I look forward to speaking to you again. Keep reading this in Emily's blog. Keep listening to the podcast. Please do subscribe and rate us if you can. And we will look forward to speaking to you soon. Have fun, everybody.